It was March 11th when we were informed that the World Health Organization had changed the designation of the COVID-19 coronavirus from an epidemic to a pandemic. Like many people, I turned to an online dictionary and learned that a pandemic is an epidemic on steroids, an epidemic with a greater range and coverage. While looking for that information, I came across a top ten list of the worst pandemics of all time. The number one worst pandemic was the Black Plague of the 1300s, with an estimated death toll of up to 200 million people, followed by the 1918 flu pandemic with up to 50 million deaths. Number ten on the list was a cholera plague in 1910 and 1911, where 800,000 people died. It puts into perspective our current pandemic with nearly 14,000 deaths worldwide. I had been aware of top 10 listings of the best hockey players of all time, the 10 worst hurricanes to hit the U.S., and the top 10 most popular songs in a given week. For nearly two decades, late-night television host David Letterman made top 10 lists part of his regular fare. But top ten lists are not a recent thing. Thirty-three centuries ago, God gave us his top ten list, the Ten Commandments. And it is this list that provides the context for our text this morning. After a full day in the temple courts, a day filled with questions and debates over topics such as authority, paying taxes to Caesar and a bizarre question about marriage and resurrection, one of the teachers of the law has another question for Jesus. Please turn with me to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark as we see how Jesus answers that question. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28. Hear God's unchanging word. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is God's word. It was a question that had been debated within Judaism for at least several hundred years. And the question was this. What is the most important law? That is, which law is first and foremost among the laws? This is a question that the scholars rigorously debated. 
This question was part of the daily fodder of rabbinic dialogue where rabbis argued about the priorities of certain laws. And having 613 laws, not just biblical laws, mind you, but biblical interpretations that became laws and traditions, having 613 laws made the question all the more important in their thinking. Why did they say that there were 613 laws? The rabbis looked at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the Hebrew language and counted up all the letters, and they found that there were 613 letters. So they said that there had to be 613 laws. But they weren't finished with this silliness. They said that 365 of the laws were prohibitions, laws against doing something, one for each day of the year. But that still left them with 248 commandments. This number, they said, was the reputed number of generations of man. Now, what that had to do with anything, who knows? In attempting to bring meaning into this great number of laws, the scribes divided them into weighty and light categories. In this scheme of things, they then argued about which were the lighter laws in terms of what pleased God and which were the heavier laws and how were they to know those and apply them. Matthew's gospel in chapter 23 reports a conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. He tells them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe your spices, little seeds of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. So even Jesus recognized that there were lighter issues, those laws which had to do with diet and food and things like that, and that there were heavier, weightier things that had to do with matters of spiritual priority. But the scribes weren't finished. They then cross-classified them as either ritual or ethical laws. This need to find meaning in the law challenged them to develop a single, simple working principle that would encompass all of the laws. This drive to find a single unifying theory or law exists not only in the realm of religion. It wasn't that many years ago when news reports and magazine articles were reporting on the unsuccessful attempts of many physicists to bring together the laws of general relativity and quantum mechanics in a meaningful way. Mathematician and author Stephen Hawking, who died two years ago, in the introduction to his book, the theory of everything, spoke of looking for a unifying theory to understand the universe. So when the scribal expert asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment of all? He must have had this challenge in mind. Well, Mark's account doesn't tell us. Matthew's account lets us know that this was also a test. But this question doesn't seem like a test. At first glance, it appears to be a straightforward question by someone who really wants to know the answer to a question that has plagued Judaism for centuries. So in what way could this scribe's question be considered a test, a trap? The answer to that question is that the Pharisees and Sadducees felt that Jesus' teachings were against the law of Moses. 
Since Jesus did not interpret the scriptures in the same fashion as these religious leaders, Jesus was branded as being against Moses and the Old Testament law. The Sanhedrin were responsible for the civil and religious life of Israel. They are feeling threatened by Jesus' popularity with the common people. He is threatening their power, their position, and their income. So in their attempts to deal with Jesus, they come up with a question that all can agree upon. What is the greatest commandment? What is the first and foremost commandment? The purpose of this approach is to get Jesus to say something that is not in the writings of Moses, because they have already concluded that Jesus is against Moses. If he elevates himself above Moses... If Jesus comes up with a new law, there is a greater chance that the people will turn away from him. He will be declared a heretic. Jesus responds from within the framework with which both Pharisees and Sadducees could agree. He answers from the Pentateuch, from the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, with words that would have been familiar to every Jew. Jesus answers with these words, The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The beginning phrase is the cornerstone of the Jewish faith. It is the Jewish creed that is recited by faithful Jews each morning and evening. It is known as the Shema because the first word in the Hebrew language is Shema, which means hear. And what is Israel to hear? That the Lord our God is one. In a polytheistic world where so-called gods were a dime a dozen, the proclamation of the Shema told a different story. There is only one true God, so you don't need to have divided loyalties. Since there is only one true God, you don't have to divide your allegiances. You only need to love one God because there is only one God. And you need to love him with all your capacities. Our supreme duty then is to love that one God for who he is and for what he has done. The word love that Jesus uses in our text is the same word that is used of God's love for us. It is a self-giving love. And we are to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, as Moses tells us in Deuteronomy. And also with another dimension that Jesus adds in our text, our strength. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? In the first three Hebrew words, heart, soul, and mind, a precise distinction is hard to determine. Sometimes these words are used interchangeably. What is clear, however, is that the very core of our identity, the source of our thoughts, words, and actions, our desires, emotions, and passions, our wills and meditations, and our physical activities all combine to love the one true God. It is an intelligent love. It is an emotional love. It is a willing love. It is an active love. It is, in a word, an all-consuming love. 
And the addition of the words with all before each item puts forth the emphatic nature of this comprehensive, wholehearted love. As one person has stated, we might say that God's wholehearted love toward us should not be returned with a half-hearted love on on our part. This theme of loving the Lord your God is found numerous times in Moses' last will and testament. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we read verses such as these three found in chapter 11. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. That last verse has an intriguing phrase, hold fast to him. The context of these verses lies amid warnings not to turn away from God and turn to the false gods of those who lived in the promised land. Why would they be tempted to turn away? One reason is a common one we face today, the lure of the world. Their neighbors had cool-looking gods and goddesses that you could see and manipulate to get your wishes. Another reason is one we also face today, fear. While it might not be the same fears as those faced by the people of God as they are about to enter the promised land, we have our own fears. The test for them and us is to hold fast to God no matter what the dangers and temptations may be and no matter what the culture around us is saying. But Jesus is not yet finished talking about love. Not only are we to love the Lord our God, we are also to love our neighbor. Jesus tells us the second command is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Some people are confused by this statement. They think it means that you need to love yourself more, that you need more self-esteem. But that is not what this is saying. For you already love yourself. Our whole lives are involved in taking care of ourselves. For example, we wash, feed, and clothe ourselves daily. What Jesus is saying is to treat other people the same with the same care we treat ourselves. It's not a call to self-love. It's a call to love others the way you already love yourself. Why does Jesus give these two commandments? Because there are no other commandments greater than these. In fact, in Matthew's account, it reports that Jesus said that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In a way, the Ten Commandments are an expansion of these two commands, For the first four are about loving God, and the final six speak about the ways in which we love our neighbors. In these two commands, Jesus has said it all. He has summed up the very essence of all the commandments of God. This scribe is impressed. At some point, he had joined the religious leaders as they were engaged in debating Jesus. At the very least, he had heard the debate between Jesus and the Sadducees with their question about marriage and the resurrection. The wisdom and the way in which Jesus had put down these know-it-alls with their clever questions had impressed him greatly. And he is greatly impressed with Jesus' reply to his question. 
Well said, teacher, you are right about the Shema. And to love God with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is a truly amazing statement. And even more so when you realize where it is being said and on what occasion. Here they are during the week of Passover, surrounded by all this ritual and routine in the temple grounds. Not only are the regular sacrifices and burnt offerings taking place day and night, you have the additional sacrifices being made on an enormous level because it is a Passover. Here they are in the middle of this sacrificial system with priests all over the place, and this scribe realizes that what's more important than all this ritual and routine is to love God and others. When Jesus sees that this scribe has spoken wisely, he tells him that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Now that's good, but not good enough. Near isn't good enough, for all of us must enter God's kingdom by placing our faith in Christ. He's near because he understands that it is an eternal, internal issue, not a ritual issue. I do hope that he did take that step into God's kingdom. I hope that he was among those priests and Pharisees listed in the book of Acts who became obedient to the faith. Ultimately, this incredible teaching of Jesus throws us upon the grace of God. For who on their own could even remotely begin to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength? The only reason we love him is because he first loved us. It is only by God's grace and the love for us found in his son, Jesus, that gives us the power to keep the law as he commands by loving him and our neighbor. The one who genuinely understands this summons to love is the one who knows how completely they have fallen short of God's will. Oh, these commands sound lovely. Love God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. But these beautiful words as much toll the death knell for all of us. So far are we from keeping these commandments that we must wonder if in all our lives we have ever kept either of them. Have we ever loved God so completely and so passionately? And have we ever loved anyone else as much as we love ourselves? The COVID-19 coronavirus is putting us in the crosshairs of this command to love our neighbors. How can hoarding supplies needed by our neighbors be seen as loving our neighbor? Taking simple precautions that will not only protect yourself but also your neighbor is another way to love our neighbors. When the bubonic plague came to Wittenberg in what is now Germany in 1527, many people fled the town in fear of their lives. Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina, who was pregnant at the time, remained in their beloved city in order to treat the infected. Despite the calls for him to flee Wittenberg with his family, Luther's mind was set on helping the infected. He inevitably came to the conclusion that it was not inherently wrong for one to so value their life that they did not remain, but only so long as the sick had someone of greater faith than they to care for them. 
He balanced this position with the conviction that this one of greater faith ought not condemn the one of weaker faith who fled. And then Luther wrote these wise words that can help inform the way we approach things happening in our world right now. He wrote, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor, nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. To selfish people like ourselves, these commandments, more than any others, prove how much we need a Savior who would die for our sins, how much we need the forgiveness of God, and how much we need a new heart, a heart capable of such a love as this. Our inability to fulfill the law's demands was recognized by Augustus Toplady, an Anglican clergyman and hymn writer. In his most famous hymn, Rock of Ages, he penned these words, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. When you see Jesus' perfect love on the cross, when that sinks into the very center of your being, it enables you to move ahead in obedience and love. The gospel that is proclaimed every Sunday is that I am more wicked and sinful than I ever dared to admit because in myself I can't keep these commands. But at the same time, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared to hope. The first part will destroy your pride. I'm a sinner, a terrible sinner. And even my very best efforts and attempts at obedience are like filthy rags. But the second part will destroy the fear. For I am loved, greatly loved and accepted in Christ. So I don't obey out of the fear of consequences, a fear that God will pound me into the ground. No, I obey because I'm his beloved child. In a few short verses, Jesus answers the question that has absorbed centuries of scribal time and energy. And from now on, no one will dare ask him a question, though as we shall later see, he will have a question for them. Amen.